guys, what's up? I had a pleasure of talking to Ileana Schinder. She's an architect in the DC metro area. And I found her through Twitter. She actually was one of the panelists AIDC had in discussion with density. And she's also known for her accessible dwelling unit. She was re- recently featured in Washington Post, as well as she also writes some couple of articles. You should really check her out on her website. I'll provide a link in the show notes. I was hoping to have a really fierce discussion about density, and I could not refute her not for nothing. I, I was just listening on the phone, and she was like, hello, is anybody there? I was speechless. I was really speechless. She really knows what she's talking about. It brought me back. First of all, I'm not a really good debater. I'm more of a shouting and throwing type of person. <laughs> I guess my perspective was more of a passionate base and it wasn't really about the the need. So, it, yeah, cuz again, during the conversation, I could not defend myself. I was stumbling with my words. She probably thinks I'm an idiot. Like, it was just... And then we had technical difficulties also. As you know, I'm using Zoom for my go-to remote podcasting. And it, it did not work for me this time. And I'm thinking it's because everybody's using conference calls now and it probably got bogged down or something because I was using a free version and then I quickly upgraded last minute to uh, a monthly subscription so that I could call her on the phone because using the computer that was not working so um I apologize for that and then she just her points was just on point like I could not refute it and listening back to it because of course I heavily edited it There are some things that I was like, oh, I should have said this. Oh, I should have brought up that. Oh, I should have. What it could have, should have. But anyway, she was a great sport. She was patient with me. And I just need to step up my game, basically. So here's a conversation about accessible dwelling units and density in the district. You're the queen of accessory dwelling units. So I want (laughs) to talk about that. And then density, because I think that's a good discussion, too. So we can, Mm -hmm. like, debate a little bit about density. So pronouncing your name. So it's Ileana, right? Ileana Schinder. Okay. Ileana Schinder. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you are from Argentina? Yes. From the capital? Uh, No, I'm four hours north of Buenos Aires. Um, I went to school in Córdoba, which is in the middle of the country, also in Argentina, and I got a master's degree from American University here on communication. Okay, cool. So how long have you been practicing architecture here? I worked for other firms since 2002, and I opened my own firm in 2014. So you are focusing on um, residential. Mm Mm-hmm. That's your primary focus. Were clients approaching you saying we want to build um, an extra, we want to build up? Like, how did you get into the accessible dwelling unit? Was it, well, you I started seeing a, di- a lot of inquiries in 20, 
2016 and 2015, converting existing basements or semi sort of ghost apartments. And then after filing for permits for a few of those, I learned that DC has changed their zoning maps. I mean, their zoning regulations to allow an additional dwelling unit. And that became more of a demand side. And then I educated myself more on what it was. And then it became more of a supply side. So I now have the experience to do the work that is demanded from me. When you got into the policy side of it, what did you discover? I discovered that there's a whole lot of different goals that has to do with density and housing that goes from politics to cultural perceptions to economic forces and fashion. Even if the underground urban reality is is a result of that, it has a result of like long-term economic policies. So the the current demand for additional dwelling units is the result of decisions that were made a long time ago on housing density, housing housing supply, prices of land, prices of construction. So even if we see it now, it's something that has been brewing for at least 20 years. So I grew up born and raised in Washington, D.C., and I grew up um, on the corner of North Capitol and New York Avenue. There's this like eight story housing projects right there on the corner. As soon as you come into the city on New York Avenue on BW Parkway, you'll see it on your left, big brown mm-hmm. building. And so going up there, that was pretty much, it was that building, that apartment complex, there was another co- apartment complex. And then you have the building that used to be, I, be, I believe it used to be a print, but now it's NPR. Uh-huh. And so that area. So now when I drive by that area, I don't recognize it at all. There's other series of other apartment buildings that's going up. There's a hotel down there. So it's really that area right there. And it being on such like two major streets, you have North Capitol Street and you look mm-hmm. straight down North Capitol Street, you see the the Capitol. And then, of course, New York Avenue, which is like the entrance, the welcoming of, hey, mm-hmm. you're in the District of Columbia. So watching that area transform dramatically, it kind of scares me with density because the the area is unrecognizable. I understand the debate in terms of we need to house all these people and the single family uh, unit, the single family zoning hinders a lot of developers or even just the homeowner trying to make either like extra income for themselves or even bringing in other family members. So I want to get your perspective on that. Well, truth be told, uh, there is no more space in the city from a land perspective to house more people. We need higher density where there's higher traffic to reduce the amount of cars that we need to complete what we want to do. So it is pretty obvious, not from a design perspective only, but from an urban perspective, that the only way to create more housing is near transit hubs. It's not a matter of aesthetic or individual preference, but we cannot provide the same type of housing in different areas of the city. Uh, areas that are better communicated, closer to transit, should be higher density. 
areas that are away from transit corridors could be lower density because you have more land, because you have less demand, because you have less commercial activity. That is like urbanism 101, trying to force in lower density housing and high transit and high commerce area is a recipe for disaster because all you put is super high pressure on the housing price. So actually having single family home or lower density area, lower density housing near transit, all you're doing is creating more expensive housing and not the other way. So what you want to do is to create more and smaller units near transit, larger units away from transit. So people can choose, do I want to be near things or I want to be far away from things? So that is kind of the way it works. Um, and also to recognize that cities change and cities evolve just like a forest would change and evolve and it has to accommodate different lifestyles, different economic realities and the expectation that cities will remain the same, the same way that houses change, um, is a little bit unrealistic. Um, cities from year to year should not be um, stagnant. They shouldn't have, I mean, cities are not rocks. They have to change. Cities that don't change die. Um, Detroit, for example, buildings there are intact because jobs haven't changed in 40 years because people have not, um, people haven't had the chance to move to change their buildings. So every time you see a city and you have, and it changes from decade to get decade, that's a, that's a sign of health of the city. If Washington DC was the same way that it was in the 60s, 70s, or even the 90s, that would mean that people that live in the city would be in a bad economic position. I'm taking from the perspective of a lot of homeowners. I don't own a home in DC. My mom does and other family members do, is that the demographics of the city is changing rapidly. Some people may think it's a good thing, like you mentioned, because change, like people as a city, as a person, as communities, we all change. However, it seems that the voices of the lower income people or even like middle people or people who was born and raised in the city feels like the priorities have been placed on new folks. The priorities have been placed on the incoming people and the voices of the people who've been there for decades are not being heard. So when they see the changes of the neighborhood so rapidly, like for example, Georgetown, right? You go into Georgetown, there's a certain aesthetic. And let's say Wisconsin Avenue, that, that strip, you recognize certain buildings as being there. That's the area where there's this most strict zoning. You don't see density in a sense that you would see where I grew up. So the assumption is that you take low-income areas and you just throw density in it versus when you say high-pollutant areas, it's more controlled. So the approach... Well, for example, the example that you gave with Georgetown, for example, Georgetown is one of the areas that has the least mixed racial and economic uh, because it's uh, one of the reasons for that is because it's been forced into historic preservation. Every time you forcibly add a historic preservation layer, the long-term consequences of that is that the neighborhood becomes wider, richer, and harder to maintain and access. So actually, the reverse in reality is true. Every time that a, a, um, a neighborhood is 
preserved, like the, the building and architectures are preserved away from the interests of the community, the original community ends up being forced out because making changes to it, making repairs and renting becomes more expensive. Um, that's been proven. I don't have the white papers in front of me, but every time you see a neighborhood that has a historic preservation layer on it, just like Georgetown, the example you put, all you're doing is you are excluding from minorities to access them because they become too expensive. Uh, too expensive to acquire property and too expensive to maintain the property. So actually, it's healthier for the city to historically preserve the least areas as possible to allow that families have access to properties, to repair them, to maintain them, um, and, and, you know, to be part of the community. So the idea that uh, historically preserved building is welcoming to minorities and affordable housing, actually the reverse is true. So it sounds like then that white neighborhoods get the priority in terms of historic preservations versus black neighborhoods who are perceived as being blighted won't get that. So then the areas then get redeveloped, again, get densified, right? Because Well, there's a, there's a huge difference between uh, neighborhoods being blighted versus individual structures being purchased and transformed, which is a reality, an economic reality that really exceeds what I do. Um, because, you know, uh, it's different from, say, um, a neighborhood like um, the one in Southeast, uh, the name escapes me, where it was um, public housing and now it's being redeveloped as a huge lot versus individual houses that have been transferred from family to family and eventually sold to developers and each individual home is transformed. So those two effects are completely different. One has to do with forces of politics and what the current government thinks and implements public housing, that's a whole different debate, versus what economic forces are of the private ownership of each individual home. Uh, so it's hard to, it's hard to compare what the impact is of each and what, I mean, it's, it's pretty much impossible here in the U.S. with the freedom of commerce to prevent a homeowner from selling their individual home to the best bidder. People have been doing it for years and it's not likely to stop. Um, that is different from the government saying, well, this public housing that is decrepit, that has, has provided this service to the community, um, we will either take it down or redevelop it. Then it's a whole new debate on how public housing should be provided. So it's two different conversations. One has to do with public housing and public ownership of land and buildings, and another has to do with private ownership of property and what each individual is, decides what's best for their ownership for their investment. I mean, we could judge all we want a homeowner selling a house to a flipper, but it's it's their decision to make in a way. Let's focus on what I mentioned earlier about an individual who has a home and they want to increase their family size or maybe bring in like a, a create a granny unit. I'm getting into the ADUs. I'm working on a project and the owner wants to do an addition and also it's 
the debate is whether or not it's a accessible dwelling unit or is mm -hmm. it a accessible structure. The structure itself is is just a small space. I think it's like maybe 150 square feet. It's not a lot at all, and it has like a half bath. That's tough. Or maybe because if you if you don't have a full bath, if you don't have cooking facilities, uh, if it doesn't have private functioning, uh, private utilities, it's not an additional dwelling unit. Yeah, and so the debate was with with the regulatory agency whether I needed to have one permit or two permits. And I, we've already been through zoning. We've already been through. Is that D.C.? Um, yeah, it's in D.C. And they came back to us saying that, oh, you need two separate permits, one for the addition and one for the new building, new structure. And they kept calling it a unit. And I was like, no, it's not a unit. It's not, no one lives there. You can't live there. It's just uh, uh, an artist studio. I don't know what, what, what they're going to use it for. But anyway, I had to go through filing a separate building permit for it. So I guess my question to you is the, the challenges you've seen through your projects in terms of the regulatory agency, and especially with the, the ADUs. Well, I mean, um, because I've done it for a few years now, I kind of anticipate what comment they will say and what design features to include or exclude from each design that will trigger the dwelling versus non-dwelling unit. So if you have cooking facilities, DCRA will require that you provide every other feature that you need for habit habitation. That's in the mm -hmm. building code. If you don't have a kitchen, if you don't have cooking facilities, then you can call it an artist studio or whatever because you can't cook. Um, so if particularly with a half bath. So if that is not a dwelling unit, um, that is not a dwelling unit. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> it's like kind of silly to put it that way. But it has to do with what type of living conditions do you offer that will be um, that will or will not be a habitable space. Mm-hmm. ADUs aren't, they're not on the books, correct? You still have to go through zoning for it, right? No, you don't. In Washington, D.C., they've been allowed by right since 2016, so you don't have to okay. go to zoning. In terms of Maryland, Montgomery County specifically, are they? Now, yeah, Montgomery County has passed a ruling that now they're allowed by right now. So Okay. DC and the low income and density, the second part that you mentioned. Again, my issue is the fact that I felt low income folks aren't being heard in terms of the the density portion of it, in terms of having a voice as to control over the city and the fact that the city is focusing more on the new folks rather than the old folks? Uh, when you're creating a density in the form of one additional unit per house, you're not in fact creating any density that affects any other urban design facts. So creating a basement apartment or a garage, it has proven that it doesn't contribute negatively to parking. It actually contributes positively to additional neighbors, additional support for retail, um, creates new housing units where none was available or accessible for others. So actually, it's in every community that has promoted additional dwelling units as a way to 
at housing, what that actually contributed is for the type of housing that minorities need um, in the shape of smaller units in areas where they only larger units economically inaccessible to them. So particularly in California, where this is an issue, it has shown that families that are immigrant families or families that are lower income brackets, they're allowed to live in neighborhoods that unless they, if they didn't have that additional dwelling unit in the property, they wouldn't be able to afford it. So I'm not sure that um, additional dwelling units and gentle density is actually negative for minorities. Because all it does, if you exclude additional dwelling units, actually you're excluding the potential for income for a homeowner to remain in their house like an older person or a person with disabilities or a person on fixed income to have more people living in their property and generating income and stability with that. Person who can generate income and in, in really just people who can't afford um, $3,000 a month and maybe something else that's on their credit history that maybe that a homeowner can look over and, you know, welcome a couple or, you know, so I'm not, I'm not positive about what the regulations of rent is. That's not my specialty or my transporte. And that depends a lot on the local laws of each jurisdiction on what type of conditions a landlord can put for renters to access. But it is obvious that when you have more units available for rent from different homeowners, you can have more freedom on who you want to rent from instead of having less units from less homeowners to choose from. So I'm not so mm -hmm. sure if additional dwelling units as a urban policy negatively affect one, negatively affect one particular group. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, no, I think it's been great. Okay, you've been very patient with me uh, with the glitches. Thank you so much. All right, um, thank you. All right, have a good one. Okay, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show. And it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S. P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.